Thank you for listening to Soho Bites, the only podcast in the world, as far as we're aware, dedicated to talking about films set in Soho, the beating heart of bohemian cosmopolitan London. If you would like to support the show, you can do this in the form of a star rating or review at SohoBitesPodcast.com forward slash review. Or if you'd like to put a small amount of money where your mouth is, you can do that at SohoBitesPodcast.com forward slash donate. Donations can be from as little as £3, which will buy at London prices about half a drink for one of our thirsty guests. You may hear some different URLs in the upcoming episode, but by far the easiest way is to follow one of those links. They are again SohoBitesPodcast.com forward slash review and SohoBitesPodcast.com forward slash donate. Thank you for your continued support and enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome to episode 37 of Soho Bites. Soho Bites is the podcast in which we talk to people who love Soho and people who love film. My name is Dominic DeLaghi and it's been quite some time since the last episode. In fact, just looking at my notes here, we were last together in September, which is quite a long time. I wouldn't want you to think that I've been lounging around with my feet up, though. Far from it. This was the second planned extended breakaway from Soho Bites, so that I could concentrate on making the most recent series of another film-related podcast I make, Kino Quickies. That has all now come to an end, so here we are, back together, for another long-awaited episode of Soho Bites, the only podcast in the world about films set in Soho, I think. Just on Kino Quickies, though, if you don't know... This is a show based on live events, screenings of 1930s quota quickie films at the Kino Cinema in Bermondsey Square, South East London. The Kino is a lovely little cinema with a great bar and is an important cultural asset for the people of that community, or at least it was until it was shut down at very short notice in January due to a huge increase in service charges and rent. All the staff were laid off and the venue is currently sitting empty. There are the very early beginnings of a movement underway to try to reopen the cinema in some form and local councillors have become involved. If you'd like to be kept up to date with developments, you can follow the Kino Quickies Twitter, which is at Kino Quickies, or join the mailing list by writing to kinoquickies at gmail.com and you can hear all episodes of both seasons of the podcast at kinoquickies.com. But back to Soho. The featured film for this episode is that most quintessential of Soho films, Beat Girl from 1960. Several scenes are set in a Soho coffee shop. There are some in a strip club and there are references to the famous Two Eyes coffee shop on Old Compton Street, that place where rock and roll wannabes used to go to get discovered. It doesn't get more Soho than that. It's one of those films that is often recommended to me as one I should cover. Have you ever thought about doing that film, Beat Girl? You know that's set in Soho. Right? And although it has been on the list from the start, and even though a picture from the film is the main image on the Soho Bites website, I've never actually got around to doing it until now. Later on in the show, I'll be meeting up with the novelist Des Birkinshaw to talk about Beat Girl. Des is something of a Sohoite, and his most recent book, Miniskirts Are Murder, centres on the Soho of the 1960s as well as that of the 21st century. That's in the second half of the episode. And the star of Beat Girl, Gillian Hills, was only 15 when the film was shot, 
and not long afterwards she moved to France and began a parallel career there as a singer, specifically a singer in the French yeah yeah music scene of the 1960s. In the first half of the show, I'll be talking to Paris-based journalist Hannah Steinkoff frank about Yeah Yeah. Do you want to hear about Yeah Yeah? Yeah Yeah! Yeah Yeah! I thought you would. You're listening there to the winning song from the 1965 Eurovision Song Contest, Poupée de Cire, Poupée de Son. My French accent is fantastic, which translates as Wax Doll, Rag Doll. It won the competition for Luxembourg, but was written by Serge Gainsbourg and sung by 17-year-old France Gall, both of whom were French, and both of them were key players in the Yeah Yeah music scene, a very French version of the beat music scene that was popular in the UK and the US. I have to admit that until recently I knew next to nothing about Yeah Yeah and shame on me for that because it turns out I love it. I'd heard of some of the Yeah Yeah girls. Most of the singers were young pretty women such as Gillian Hills from Beat Girl. Pretty girls were a sort of Yeah Yeah trademark. And I knew some of the songs. I just weirdly never heard the term Yeah Yeah. Somebody who has heard the term and knows about the genre is the journalist Hannah Steinkoff-Frank. Originally from Chicago, but now based in Paris, working for Le Monde, Hannah writes about music and culture, and it was her article on the Messy Nessie Chic website entitled A Crash Course in French Yeah Yeah Pop Culture, which prompted me to get in touch with her. I've linked to that article in the show notes at SohoBytesPodcast.com. I would have liked, of course, to have met Hannah in Paris, but the Soho Bites budget doesn't stretch to that, so I spoke to her online. The quality wasn't perfect, but it was definitely cheaper than the Eurostar. I wanted to know what her top five favourite Yeah Yeah songs were, but before that, I picked her brains on all things Yeah Yeah and began by asking her to explain what the scene was and how it got its name. The Yeah Yeah scene was the French popular music scene of the early to mid to late 1960s. It came about at the same time as the British invasion was rocking the airways as rock and roll was developing as its own genre. In a very oversimplified way, it is sort of viewed as the French response, a French popular music response to what was happening in Anglophone countries. The name, they like to say, it came from the Beatles, She Loves You, Yeah, Yeah, Yeah. <laughs> Other accounts have said it comes from the cheering of crowds, but in any case, what really separated it from the other popular music of this era was it was almost totally driven by female singers and female artists who often had men as songwriters in the background, as record producers, but who really stood out as carving a very sort of feminist space within a rock music genre that was very, very largely dominated by men. Even though it started in France and started with French language music, it pretty amazingly, really quickly expanded across Europe. There were popular Italian yay singers, and it even went as far as Japan, and was sort of the origins of some Japanese idol music. 
this genre that, you know, like the British Invasion, spread across the world. You see that as well with uh, Yeye. One thing that also sort of set it apart is sort of who these women were and how through their music they sort of embody different characters. There's a really great book by uh, Jean-Emmanuel Deluxe called uh, Yee Girls of 60s French Pop, which is sort of the really definitive text on this. Who He writes about how each of them sort of embodied a unique archetype, whether it be you know, the fashionista, the nerd, the romantic, and even as you got into the later 60s, the protester, and they became these really enviable images that other young women wanted to adapt. But what sort of connected them all was the ones in France, in France represented this idea of the cool Parisian that was really starting to evolve during this time and influenced the French cultural image across the world. Some of it did come out of sort of the artistic scenes in the capitals, the cafe bars that have always sort of been a part of the French cultural landscape where things sort of develop, you know, open mics sort of thing. Even though there were a lot of J.A. singers who weren't from Paris, who were from other parts of France, even some, you know, sort of dual identities that came from the UK, from Switzerland, had grown up elsewhere. Paris was sort of where a lot of the movement um, converged. The question of whether these women had agency in their music, in their public image, is a really contested and interesting one. In some ways, this was an unprecedented space that women had in the public sphere. You know, an era when women could receive education, have more access to professional opportunities, and birth control is also a big part of this. And you see women, in some ways you could say, asserting their sexuality and their music and their image, but also there's a question of whether there was, you know, I guess you could say these male puppets behind them who were using their image, their sexuality to exploit and make money. And obviously a really famous example of that within the Yee movement was France Gall and her song Les Suzettes, the, the Lollipop, which was written by Serge Gainsbourg. And she was 17 years old. Oh no, sorry, she was 18 years old when she performed that song. So she was really quite young. It's very sexualized. So you do have these sort of questions of ideas of exploitation as their choice to be doing these are all really sort of interesting questions. And especially at the time, they were often dismissed as being, you know, sort of light, unimportant, just music that would interest young women. But you do also see at the same time women who did assert themselves and even Simone de Beauvoir commented on the gay girls, which I find quite funny. And, you know, she described them as carefree in between women who I giggled at the idea of marriage and commitment um, in what was still a very conservative society. I think when you did see women assert themselves, it obviously wasn't these, you know, very powerful feminist anthems because that just 
wasn't what was conceivable at the time, but you saw it in sort of these smaller ways, these sort of edging in their way. You know, like Franscal, one of her other most famous songs is Las Tombe les Filles, which is Leave the Girls Alone. And it's a whole song about um, dating a guy who's not great and, you know, wanting him to leave you alone. And it's quite funny, it's quite light. But there's still an assertiveness, there's still a power in it. So I think that's often how women asserted themselves. Jillian Hill, the star of B-Girl, had quite an international upbringing, was born in Egypt, lived in the UK and in France as well, and she started her career incredibly young, starring in B-Girl at just 15 years old, and very soon after that also began her music career. Even though she sort of had this combined acting and musical career, neither really overtook the other. You do see her music continue to have influence, continue to be seen in popular culture. Her song, uh, Tut was included in the series Queen's Gambit from a couple years ago. And so when you see these pieces of media coming out now that are nostalgic for the 60s era or you know, trying to recreate the mood, you see her and her music as being part of that. My top five Yeye Girl songs, I'll start with a Jillian Hill song because of the topic of this. And it is maybe one of her most famous, Zuby Zuby Zoo, which a lot of people heard about again because it was included in an episode of Mad Men. Zuby Zuby Zoo. Zuby Zuby Zoo. Definitely a bit lighter, but um, I've always enjoyed that one. My second is Franza Hardy's uh, Tous les garçons et les filles. One of the first uh, Gay Gay Girl songs that I learned, I remember in a French class, we had to look at the lyrics and analyze them. And I, it always sort of shocked me because it's such a very sad song with such a happy melody. And she's so beautiful and cool. You know, when you talk about the image of these artists, she was the really cool girl. She also dressed in a more, often more masculine style. So also sort of was defying gender norms in a way that could be a bit empowering. The next one I will say is uh, Sylvie Vatton with the song uh, La Plus Belle pour aller danser, which has a really interesting rhythm. Um, how she sings, the tone is a little bit different and interesting. There you really see in the lyrics quite open sexually. Like a translation is, the dress that I wanted, that I had sewed stitch by stitch, 
will be crumbled in the hair that I comb, disheveled by your hands. It's it's very openly sexual in a way that is also quite poetic, quite beautiful, quite French. I think it's quite powerful for a woman to be singing that in that era. <laughs> The next one I wanted to pull something a little bit un unexpected, a little bit out there, because those first, first three are quite famous. And this one is actually uh, Ten Va Pa Comme Ça by Nancy Holloway, which is a cover of Diane Warwick's uh, Don't Make Me Over. Nancy Holloway is quite interesting as probably one of the only American yay girls, but what's interesting is so she's from Ohio and ended up moving to Paris and would do French covers of American hits. She would often perform at the Moulin Rouge and ended up owning her own Paris nightclub. I think a lot of this history has sadly not been covered enough, and her story in particular. Um, and she was also black, and you know, one of the few yay girls who was not white. So I think her story is quite interesting and important to include. My fifth song, my last one, which I previously mentioned, I'll do France Girls Laisse tomber les filles, which is, you know, leave the girls alone. And you know, of course, she had become famous with uh, the lollipop song, and she had even later said that, talking about exploitation, she later said that she had felt used by Gainsbourg, that she was sort of put in this position where she was uncomfortable. And you know, she had become quite famous. At 17, she won the Eurovision Song Contest for Luxembourg. But I really like that, even if they had experienced exploitation, you see in a song like this, which also has a really fun music video to go along with it, the agency being asserted by some of these women. Thank you, Hannah Steinkopf-Frank, for coming on the show and sharing your knowledge on the subject of Yeah Yeah Music. Hannah's day job at the moment is the creation of the Le Monde website in English. And yes, I'm aware that the Le Monde means the the world, don't at me. You can find links to that and to her Twitter and to her very interesting website in the show notes for this episode at SohoBytesPodcast.com. Hello, this is what's known as a mid-roll ad. It's one of those annoying interruptions that's inserted retrospectively at just the wrong point. And the reason for it is that Soho Bites takes up hours of time every month, and I'm hoping you might be able to support the show. There are two ways you can do this. One is for free, and it's to leave the show a star rating or kind review. You can do that at sohobitespodcast.com forward slash review, or if you'd like to assist financially to help cover our costs, you can do that at sohobitespodcast.com forward slash donate. Thank you very much. Apologies for the interruption and back to the episode. Beat Girl was shot in 1959 and released in 1960. It was directed by the French director Edmund Greville or Edmond Gravy. He, like the film star Gillian Hills, 
had a career in both France and the UK and was comfortable working in both languages. He actually directed another Soho film, one which you've yet to cover, Noose from 1948, which is set in a wartime Soho of crooks, nightclubs and spivs. A few years on and the post-war Soho of Beat Girl is where young people, art students, beatniks and aspiring musicians hang out looking for kicks, all to the soundtrack of the irresistible John Barry score. There's a zeitgeisty feel to Beat Girl, or rather it feels like it's trying to be zeitgeisty. Its lead character Jennifer studies at St Martin's but spends most of her time round the corner in a Soho coffee bar with her friends Dave and Tony and Dodo, played by Adam Faith, Peter McHenry and Shirley and Field respectively. A young and gurning Oliver Reed also appears as one of the peripheral coffee shop gang, but is only credited as plaid shirt. The young talk in an excruciatingly self-conscious, unconvincing beatnik slang, lots of daddy-o and dig-it and kicks, which perplexes Jennifer's father when he hears it, which is probably the point. Where do you get your kicks from? Sitting around in cafes listening to gramophone records? Jiving in underground cellars and caves? You are a real square, aren't you? This language, these words, what does it mean? It means us. Something is ours. We didn't get it from our parents. We can express ourselves, and they don't know what we're talking about. It makes us different. Why do you need to feel so different? That's all we've got. Next week, boom. Up goes the world of smoke. And what's the score? Zero. So now, while it's now, we'll live it up. Do everything. Feel everything. Strictly for kicks. You'll find there's more to life than kicks, as you call it. Jennifer's dad there, Paul, played by David Farrer, is an architect who, at the start of the film, returns from a trip to France with his new wife, Nicole, played by Noel Adam, who's only eight years older than Jennifer. In almost the opening scene, he tells Nicole how his relationship with his daughter is faltering. Nicole, I'll be perfectly frank with you. I find Jennifer a puzzle. A puzzle? How do you mean? Well, I don't understand her anymore. When she was a baby, we were such good friends, but now I... But she's not a baby anymore. Well, she's only 16. She needs the understanding and affection of another woman. Well, I'm sure you'll be wonderful for her. She'll absolutely adore you. Oh, Paul, I'm a lucky woman. All at once, I have a husband, a family, a home. It's these three core characters, Jennifer, her father Paul and his new wife Nicole, who are at the heart of the story, as Jennifer, whose behaviour is often obnoxious to say the least, attempts to drive a wedge between the two adults. She does this by threatening to reveal a secret of Nicole's that she has accidentally discovered, which is that while living in Paris, Nicole worked as a stripper and probably sold sex on the side. After his daughter and his new wife, the next thing Paul loves the most is his city. Not London, though, the city in which he lives, but City 2000, a futuristic utopian development that he's been planning for decades, a place where enormous concrete baffles will deaden all sound, making it as peaceful as a village. A model of this concrete paradise takes pride of place in the family's starkly modern Kensington living room. As Jennifer sees it though, the city is devoid of all humanity and Paul is hopelessly out of touch if he thinks anybody would want to live there. Well, now, you wouldn't say that I was exactly old-fashioned, would you? But Jennifer thinks I'm too modern. Strictly as an architect. In every other sense, a square. Show me the cité, please. You'll be sorry. <laughs> she may be right, you know. If I get my city out, you'll be up till dawn. It's my life's work. It's meant more to me than anything in the world. 
Hasn't it, Jenny? Yes. I've called it City 2000. Grime, filth, poverty, noise, hustle and bustle, these things will be unknown. An almost silent place. Soundproofed with the use of flying beveled walls of concrete, which also serve to cut wind and rain. Jennifer says it'll be like living in a tin can, but uh, I don't think that's really true. You know, psychologists think that most human neurosis come from too much contact with other humans. So, so far, this strangulated family drama could all have been taken from a play by Ibsen, but this is a 1960 exploitation film set mostly in Soho, remember? A place that represents sexual availability, wantonness and youthful abandon. There are long scenes set inside Les Girls, a strip club over the road from the teen's coffee shop, and the story is often put on hold for long periods of time while we're treated to the gyrations of some of the club's performers. The manager of the club is Kenny King, played by Christopher Lee, fresh from his debut as Dracula, and he's only slightly less sinister as Kenny. When away from London for the evening, the group of teenagers indulge in some risky behaviour and nobody takes bigger risks than Jennifer, almost getting herself decapitated by a train in a game of chicken. We, the audience, are supposed to be shocked at how out of control these young people are, but they can't help it. They're just wild for kicks, daddy-o. And Wild for Kicks is the more sensational title under which the film was released in the US. And pretty much all the publicity material on both sides of the Atlantic plays up the more salacious aspects of the story, prominently featuring images of the sex kittenish Gillian Hills, who was only 15, remember, in scanty outfits with strap lines such as this could be your teenage daughter and my mother was a stripper and I want to be a stripper too. We're invited to disapprove of the wayward youth whilst at the same time harbouring lustful thoughts about them. Edmund Greville, the director, was apparently not very happy with the way the film was sold and, according to Gillian Hills, who gave an interview to the BFI about the film in 2016 when she was about 72, the generational divide in the film was also there in real life and there was discomfort on both sides during the making of the film. I've posted a link to that interview with Gillian, which is far more interesting than anything I could ever have to say about the film, in the show notes for this episode at SohoBytesPodcast.com. Des Birkinshaw's career is what they always describe in introductions like this as eclectic. He's a former TV producer and filmmaker, a journalist, a musician, a radio presenter and also now a novelist with two novels under his belt and one on the way. Details of those at the end. He's also an aficionado of Soho and a big fan of the composer John Barry, whose Beat Girl score does so much of the heavy lifting on this film. We didn't want to discuss Beat Girl in a sterile studio and would have preferred a Soho coffee shop with some jiving beatniks to keep us company, but this is 2023 and the coffee shops and beatniks have gone, so we had to find somewhere else. In the end, we met up in the bar of the Soho Theatre on Dean Street one morning, and although Oliver Reed wasn't doing terrible dancing next to us, there was some discreet groovy jazz playing and some general background hubbub. 
I'm here in the Soho Theatre Bar. It's got groovy music in the background. And sitting opposite me is a man who has, has adopted my look. He's got the lovely shaved head. He's got the spectacles. It's Des Birkinshaw. Des, how are you? Well, it is like looking in a mirror, isn't yeah. it? Because we're sitting across <laughs> the table from each other. I'm fine, thank you. Now, explain who you are, because you have a particular position in Soho at the moment. Or is it just finished? Well, Please that's just finished. That. I've just finished a two-year stint as the presenter of the Museum of Soho on Soho Radio. Soho Radio has collapsed down to one channel. So like in common with a lot of shows we've ended, we might carry it on as a podcast, but that's been fun. But also I'm a novelist uh, as well as a filmmaker and stuff. And so when I was a filmmaker and program maker, I was always in Soho for that. But my books um, are very much based uh, around 60s Soho, uh, you know, that kind of thing. So. And uh, music is a, a big part of your career and music is a big part of the film we're going to be talking about, which is Beat Girl. I didn't force this film upon you, I actually, I showed you the list and this is what you chose. Had to choose it, had to choose it. Do you love this film? I first saw it um, 25 years ago. I'm amazed no one has uh, picked up on it before in all your podcasts. I find that surprising as well, actually. I think the music is the most important thing about the film, I actually say. You know, apart from it's the subject matter of the film to a large degree, it's also the, it's John Barry's first soundtrack. And so many of the motifs that later crop up in his work crop up in that. So like the bass flute solo with just like a you know, bit of uh, hi-hat going on background. You can actually hear a lot of what's going to emerge with the greatest British film composer of all time in the next few years. Yeah, and um, Edgar Wright uses it in that little film he made set in Soho recently. Uh, it crops up. Um, and the music is absolutely iconic, in, um, particularly that theme tune. I, I think, because I revisited the film again when I was preparing for this, and I thought, oh, it's not... The film isn't as good as I thought it was. And I think... It has a position in people's minds of being this fantastic film, and that's largely thanks to the music, because actually... It's a terrible, fun. terrible film, let's <laughs> okay. be honest. But still of interest. Yeah, yeah and I very think much of interest. It, maybe you, you feel the same way, but I feel like it was a, a cusp film. We haven't got Beatlemania yet for a few years. We're in that kind of post-war bit. The films that year are not great. I was, I've got a list of films, and its contemporaries were things like... Well, to be fair, Peeping Tom's there, which I know is a controversial film, but uh, Friday Night, Saturday Morning was that year as well. Oh, yeah. Which yeah. is, of course, a key film and represents, I think, the hinging between the post-war generation of, of people who fought the war and then the people who were trying to get away from the war. And that's what this film sits in that category, I think, though it's clearly made by older people. So we've got Peeping Tom and Friday Night, Saturday Morning. They're the two good ones. Then after that, uh, you've got Carry On Constable, The Tender Trap, The World of Susie Wong, Village of the Damned, School for Scoundrels. Oh, I quite like Village of the Damned, in a way. I suppose. There were two films about Oscar Wilde, Oscar Wilde and the Trials of Oscar Wilde, and The Entertainer, you know. So, And the other thing is that happened that year was Dick Lester did his first film with the goons, you know, the running, jumping, standing still film, which later was cited as the inspiration for Hard Day's Night, both when Alan Owens wrote the screenplay, but also the Beatles were like so happy to work with Dick Lester because he'd done that film. So there's a sense of things changing, but it hasn't changed yet. And I think the film is caught between these two worlds. So it's trying to be all cool and weird, but actually, I think across the internet, it's labelled as a teen exploitation film, and it is because it's not—it's not really. It's not, there's no attempt at any kind of message there. So, who do you think this film was aimed at at the time? 1960. Is it aimed at the cool youth, the, the daddy-o saying youth, or is it, is it more at the kind of scared parents who don't understand the, these kids with a muck on their face and all that sort of stuff? So I think it's an aspirational film. Clearly, if you were part of the Two Eyes Soho crowd, this film would be an embarrassment. You know, you would just be like, how dare they? 
parents, I don't think they'd have watched it to be scared. So I think it's it's appealing literally to someone who's hoping to get out of their room someday uh, in two years' time and start drinking and being cool. Okay. <laughs> but it was X-rated because it's got breasts and nipples in it. So yeah. uh, they wouldn't have been able to see it anyway. So that's really weird, isn't it? And it does have this really preachy element where it's... Because on the posters it says, this could be your daughter and that kind of thing. And isn't it terrible how the youth have gone off the rails? But it has extended scenes of stripping. Right. That, yes. that I mean, the main, buttock woman. The buttock woman. Impressive buttocks. Has it's to be very said. impressive. Uh, and then she's sucking on her scarf like she's giving a blowjob. Yeah. And it was uh, my wife was watching it with me. So I forced her to watch it. And uh, <laughs> and she goes, what the actual? And I was going, I know. She goes, I thought this was a film for teenagers. Going, it was X-rated with cuts. So there's a presumably another version somewhere with you know there's another couple of uh, nipples or something in there i am someone who's watched a hell of a lot of british film but i must have wiped this out because i know peeping tom's got some nudity in it too he's got isn't peeping tom the first full frontal nudity in film i think it is obviously we, the truth is that in 2022 we're more prudish than we've ever been so we, there is an absolute puritanical streak now in society so you, you don't like to do that unless it's really necessary so apparently i've misremembered my own history of british film because there it is you know like uh, nipples it's shot in 59 yeah and also Expresso Bongo has almost nipples I mean it's I think there are nipples I don't know can we say nipples more, more yeah, yeah, yeah yeah the presentation of the strip tees and the club I mean it's not it's not presented as a nice place and Christopher Lee's character is kind of grim and it, watching it again this week and it reminded me because this Andrew Tate story is in the is in the news at the moment and he had a similar thing where he recruited women just for a different medium, really. And this phrase cropped up, which I wasn't aware of. I ran it past a few people, and they, they had heard of it. Undue influence. Have you come across this? Am I the only person who doesn't know it? So basically, it's somebody who has higher status and power cajoling usually women to do this sort of thing, basically. So it's webcamming in this case of Andrew Tate. And Christopher Lee's character... He's like as a slithering, disgusting person, isn't he? Well, he's basically, he's basically accepting she's underage, pats the couch next to him, and the implication is he's going to lay her a few minutes later, yeah. you know, if he got a chance. She was 15 when she was filming this, didn't Well, exactly. This is the thing. I mean, the other filmmakers, are they any better than Christopher Lee's character, you know? So my mum, she passed a couple of years ago, but she, we talked during the Jimmy Savile case uh, about this, and she said... You know, she's an old person. She has different view. But she goes, you know, you lot, you're so weird. She goes, look, if I could have got to top of the pops at 15, she goes, I was having sex at 15. She goes, a lot of us had left school at 15. We're not like you lot, molly coddled. And she goes, if I could have got to top of the pops and got my hands on Adam Faith, I would have done. And she goes, there's no good me looking back on it at 17. I was going, yeah, it's not what happened though, mum. That's different than that. But what she did give you an insight there into maybe a different you know people were more grown up and also they had come through the privations of war i mean their parents had and they were different people you know they weren't the same as us no i mean they're the original boomers aren't they they're baby boomers and sitting around there's a few scenes where they say quite labored contrived scenes where adam faith and the other guy um pete mchenry pete mchenry yeah he they sort of say oh, nobody understands me and my dad is this and then he goes on about the war all the time. And, and I, I, I do think, well, obviously, if they've been through the war, that's going to be tra- that's going to traumatise you for the rest of their life. And, and these teenagers are going, oh, these boring old farts. All they talk about is the war and their near-death experiences. And Adam Faith's got that scene where he talks about, did he say he was born in 
the Blitz, who's born in a tube station. Yeah. Yeah, and it was with the rats and the stuff. Yeah. Going, yeah. Well, also, he's got the last line of the film, which was, um, funny, only squares nowhere to go. Yeah, which yeah. I don't understand. What's I your take on that? I don't know what it means. Oh, I was going to ask you what that means. And it was the last line of the film. Yeah. And it obviously has great significance. For the writer. Yeah. Nowhere to so go. So I think he means, you know, us young people are cut out and we're aimless and drifting. But, you know, if you're a posh architect like you can go back know, to kensington Barry, yeah you can go back to you know we haven't actually mentioned the plot but the, no, the, we, 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 the essential we, plot to say if anyone hasn't seen it is that this posh architect marries a young french woman on holiday away for three months comes home and his 15 year old daughter played by Gillian hills jennifer is determined to wreck their marriage and then realizes she can use her stepmom's past to blackmail her and try and ruin their relationship because she used to be a stripper. Well, actually, it's quite clear she used to be a prostitute. And um, and it's all dealt with in a very kind of matter-of-fact way because in the end, there's there's not really any ramifications for that knowledge coming out, which is strange in itself, isn't it? Because you expected a bit of moralising at that point, but it didn't happen. The dad, Paul, he does accept that she has a past. Because she says, Did you think I was a virgin when you met me? And there's a distinction drawn between boyfriends and customers. But he does forgive her. He says, I love you. There's a scene where Jennifer is going right off the rails and she brings all the beats back to her posh flat. A brilliant scene. And does a strip tease. It begins to a strip tease. Gets down to a bra and pants. Because she's been egged on by all the boys and girls. But he's rescued from this, what would have been a humiliating thing to do in the end, by her stepmother, who's only eight years older than her, but can see... You know, can see where it's going. Yeah, because she's been there. Yeah. Well, that scene is brilliant. And, um, and my wife was the one who spotted that there was obviously a body double doing the stripper. So you never see Gillian, apart from undoing one little bit. Okay. So then they, they always cut to different angles or close ups because presumably, even then, getting a 15 year old to take her clothes off in front of everyone might not have been considered, you know, like. Yeah, it is quite disturbing that. I know, and I think um, the other thing is with Gillian Hills, I mean, uh, I don't know how she's really passed me by because I've seen the film and um, I've been diving into her music and her music's really interesting because she was really cultured. You can tell even now she's a philosopher and she writes really well. I mean, she did really weird things. Like she was in Blow Up, Clockwork Orange, The Owl Service, this. But then she has her own singing and everything. But she was sort of a book illustrator. So she did the original cover for The Colour Purple. Oh, I did not know that. You know, so she was a very Renaissance woman and still doing music. Her last performance was two years ago, which is out on Spotify, recorded at the Union Chapel, you know, doing a, an anti-war song, you know. And it was like, what? Oh, last year. Last so she year. must be sort of 78 Knocking, yeah, knocking. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. You know, the other thing we haven't mentioned is that there are other like amazing things in it, like Oliver Reed's first performance. We've not mentioned Oliver Reed. We haven't How mentioned we, Oliver yeah, Reed. Yeah, yeah. But this, this is why you should watch this film, I think. If I wanted to sum it up, watch this film because A, it's a classic cult film. B, it's at least well made and it gives you that kind of insight. But just look at the people in it. You see, you've got Nigel Green, you know, famously... Um, Hercules in Jason and the Argonauts playing this creepy co-owner of the strip club. You've got Christopher Lee doing... You, you said he'd done 50 films already by this stage? I think this was his 56th film. But they were all small, weren't they? Dracula yeah. was his big kick That was his big bro, yeah. Um, the year before. Then you've got Oliver Reed's first one. He gets in, and Oliver Reed's face in this, where he's grimacing and 
yeah. badly dancing. I d- and, and he's actually listed at the end as plaid shirt. Yeah. You know, he's not even got a name. Yeah. Um, Peter McHenry's first film, yeah. who then go- goes on to obviously be in Moonspinners and stuff like that. Um, Gillian Hills has his wonderful career. John Barry doing his first soundtrack, uh, which led directly to, you know, the Bond films. Which, of course, you know, it's one of the big cultural changes of the 60s. And Shirley, Shirley Ann Fields, you know, we didn't really mention her either. So it goes on to have, a, you know, three films in one year. She was the first actress to have her name on the billboard on all sides of Leicester Square because she had three films out at the same time. Well, well, I saw you sitting there so cool. Like you from there from school. So uh, one of the big stars of the film, perhaps trying to tap into the youth market, was Adam Faith. Was he a mega star or was he kind of an emerging star? He was discovered in The Two Eyes uh, in Old Compton Street in November 57 or something like that. He'd become an instant overnight name. So through 58, he's consolidating, and it's the first film he shot where he's in, although he, there was another film released before this came out because it's got delayed a bit. In, shot in 59, didn't come out till 60. So at the point where he was shooting, he's about a year and a half in. So that, in pop terms, that's quite a long way in. John Barry had already done a few tracks for him. Even people at home knew what the two eyes was by that stage. All the talent scouts went there. It was on TV regularly. You know, Cliff and the Shadows were found there. Tommy Steele was found there. Loads of people, actually. Gary Glitter was discovered there. All these kind of people, you know, and um, Adam was one of those. They absolutely were aiming for that, you know, capture some of that vibe. Great, Dad. Great. Straight from the fridge. I'm way out. Uh, this group's not so hot. Let's go and listen to the other one. daddy oh, I'm over and out. Play it down, doll. Well, you've got to live for the kicks, so you've got. Oh, hey, you. Take a place, Daddy-o. You and your phony beatnik friends. I said take a place. Okay, there are other dolls. So you made it, Granny. Managed to give them the slip. Well, well. First night the old mantle. New bright and all, you're the most. You're a real cat, Jim. Yeah, the light-footed cat. There's the slang that's used. There's some great examples of Daddy-o and far, I'm far out and... Um, the one that really made me t- have to rewind it was, that's great, Daddy-o, straight from the fridge. Straight from the fridge. I quoted that one at my wife. I was going, what the? <laughs> uh, these are not real. These are, I, I've never heard them crop up anywhere else. These were someone trying to be cool. Right. So I uh, think, see, the screenwriter, I, you know. I was thinking it's either it's so cutting edge that it was cutting edge for that one moment and it just stopped being cutting edge or it was naff then and it's naff now. So it's really interesting. Now, the Beatles crop up too often in my story for me not to mention it, but one of the things that was staggering about Get Back, I thought, and uh, also in their many interviews and everything, is the complete absence of that type of language. They actually sound like contemporary people. We're not really often given that much raw material from people from the 60s. It's like we don't know what people in Shakespearean times sounded like. And because of the way, the lack of media in the 60s, really, we only get to hear people in formal sayings. We don't get to hear too much informal. Get Back is brilliantly informal. There's none of that language there either. And I think it, it's clearly a construct from a fevered imagination of a 55-year-old screenwriter who thinks this is what young people sound like, I, quite clearly. Do people not say dig? I think that's about the only thing... They might say groovy later on. They might have had words, like we've got words, but they didn't talk in this kind of mad... um, Straight from the fridge. Someone's going to 
tell you now that we're, I'm wrong about that and that, that was actually a really cool phrase but amazingly neither of us have ever heard it apart from in this film I've definitely never heard that I mean I've heard Daddio and Dig and those kind of things there's a key scene in the film where dad and daughter have a talk at three o'clock in the morning and they kind of lay the cards on the table to a certain extent and he just is pulling his hair out I don't understand what are the, and he kind of says what are these words you're saying I don't understand this language and she says it's about making a distinction it's about making us separate from you and, and it's, it's making, our, making our own scene it kind of feels feels like the core of the film but it also feels a little bit artificial and, like you say, written by a, an old fella. But it was real. Teenagers as a construct really only existed for a few years before that. Teenagers are a construct that come out of the post-war thing with affluence from America in particular, which spreads and everything. So it was a new thing they were exploring. So we're having that, you know, in the cultural wars at the moment, we're exploring for the first time what trans identity means, right? So, so the language, the debates and everything. So this is a real conversation. And clearly they've made him as square as humanly possible with it from his haircut to his double-breasted you know stripy suit so that's what they're trying to capture but of course in real life it would have been very different but he's a very reasonable person this could be just me being an old he fella he's a very reasonable person and she is obnoxious oh and, and and unnecessarily rude so i mean where are sympathies supposed to lie with him or with her i mean well, i think with him really i think so i, I mean in the end he proves to be a fairly decent chap yeah, forgiving of all of, of uh, these lots foibles. Of things, yeah. Lots of things. And uh, the other thing is, he's very schizophrenic. So Adam Faith is a beatnik in the club. Now, were they protecting his image as a wholesome young entertainer by having him say things like, only soldiers fight, you know, um, drinks are for squares. Drinks are for squares. I mean, Jesus Christ, the whole of that Soho scene was about, you know... Getting drink, off your face. Getting off your face. And uh, for the first time, you know, getting away. The first reefers in London, uh, you know, the, the the thing where people took in Vicks inhalers and put the benzodrine pads into coffee so they could have a speed hit. You yeah, know, don't do that, kids. No, don't do that. Yeah, they, they don't put benzodrine in the inhalers anymore, so you'll just have minty breath for a couple of weeks. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, but at the time, you know, that's what it was about. Because he's, he specifically isn't doing that. And yet, then there's the scene in the, when they're back at the flat where he plays guitar, and he, he lasciviously slides across the floor as if it's like, you know, if you, if you give me the chance, I'll definitely, you know, get Jump stuck in you. with you. If he, yeah, yeah. But he never says anything, makes a move on anyone. He's like asexual no drinking no drugs he just like thinks he's cool because he can play a bit of guitar I just want to talk a little bit about this metaphor in the film which is dad's city he's, he's obviously kind of an idealist but his ideas are askew because as Jennifer says you want to make this this perfect city but you don't you don't understand the people who are going to live there like me the youth and stuff do you think that's, you think that's a good metaphor is it or a bit clumsy it's it's um What's really interesting about it, of course, is it, it, it he's, and he proves to be modern in some ways, but he's got this ultra-modern thing. There's a great Monty Python sketch, the architect sketch. Where, have you seen the, that one? Where John Cleese comes in and he's got a bunch of civil servants all in bowl hats sitting in front of him and, he goes, and, he, and he's got to show off his model. You know, so he's got a model of a city and he goes, so this is the latest in uh, things and, uh, you know, there's this, there's the concrete, this, and we do that. The uh, residents come in, pass the rotating knives, go up the stairs and they go, sorry, what did you say? The rotating knives? He goes, oh, yeah, <laughs> and it's yeah, like, you know, yeah. oh, you wanted a slaughterhouse, no? And he goes, no, we were actually going to look after our tenants. It's the same misunderstanding. This guy just does not understand where 
where society is going. That yes, they built there was the brutalism and people were building those. They had to out of necessity to remedy the post-war housing crisis. They're definitely using it as a metaphor for saying he's out of touch with the times. The times is um, you know fast cars uh, playing guitar in a bar, not building futuristic cities that no one wants to live in. He clearly has a sort of moral sense and a kind of a, an idea of his purpose and that kind of thing. And he's not, he's, he's not a bad person by any means. He's a very good person. But it just seems deluded. I mean, it's, That's it's what they're saying, isn't ugly, it? Ugly, ugly as sin, that place oh as well. Well, it's a beautiful city. If you haven't seen this film, you have to watch it just for his model of the city. It's just got these great big concrete... Uh, walls that are built up that are there to keep people free from sound. But the the the, the young people are all about sound. They're they they're playing. They've got a, Adam Faith has got a guitar in every scene wherever he is. Uh, and an invisible backing band who suddenly strike band. up whenever he sings a song. And he's terrible singing. Yeah, it's terrible. I've got a cold at the moment, so I'm very nasal. But I sound still better than Adam Faith. Many thanks to Des Birkinshaw for coming on the show. Desi's novels are the first two instalments of the Porter and the Gliss investigation series. So far, we've had Dead and Talking and Miniskirts are Murder, and I'm looking forward to the third. There will, of course, be links in the show notes to Desi's Twitter and to his comprehensive website, desberkinshaw.com. Something you won't find on Desi's website, though, is a photograph of him with one of the stars of Beat Girl, so I have provided one for you in the show notes. All of that, as well as the link to that Gillian Hills interview, the whole film itself, a playlist of Yeah Yeah songs, and links for our other brilliant guest, Hannah Steinkoff-Frank, can be found, of course, at SohoBitesPodcast.com. If you want to get in touch with the show for any reason at all, unwarranted praise is always welcome as our suggestions for future episodes. You can do that on Twitter, the handle is at BytesSoho or by email on SohoBytesPodcast at gmail.com. And we'd be very grateful if you could leave us a review. You can do that at ratethispodcast.com forward slash SohoBytes. That's ratethispodcast.com forward slash SohoBytes. SohoBytes is produced by me, Dom DeLaghi, and is based on an original idea by Dr. Jing and Young. We'll be back next month for another episode of Soho Bites in which we'll be talking about a little-known and seldom-seen wartime thriller which is based on a supposedly true story. See you then, and bye for now. Bye.